Most of you need no introduction to uh, Rosemary Lukens. Rosemary is an elder in our church. She was the chair of our session at one time, and she has had the distinction in this last year as serving uh, as our, the moderator of our entire denomination. Uh, she has been the, the, the uber boss of, of the, all of the EPC, the whole, the whole shooting uh, match. And, uh, this, and, we, and this next week, we're going to have our uh, General Assembly meeting in Denver. And uh, Rosemary, for her concluding act as moderator, will be preaching a sermon. Preaching a sermon to all of the pastors in the denomination. So I felt like it might be worthy uh, to pause a moment to pray and thank for her, thank the Lord for her service in this last year, and to pray the power of the Spirit upon her as she takes on this daunting task. There's no worse group to preach to than a bunch of preachers. It's just the worst. So uh, we need to really uh, encourage and, and, and pray the Spirit would do that. So would you extend your hand to Rosemary now and, and let's just lift her up before the Lord? Father, you call all of us, and sometimes we are surprised by that call. I know Rosemary feels that way, surprised that you would call her to this responsibility. She has served nobly in that task, and we thank you for it. We are proud of her and grateful that we can send her forth from this body, and we pray for her in this coming year as she takes on the leadership now of the national leadership team. We particularly pray for her in the final moments of her moderator uh, responsibilities and as she brings the word to the rest of, of this denomination's leadership. God, would you fill her with your spirit and would you bring to her the words that she needs, the message that we need to hear. Most of all, Lord, may your spirit rest upon her and we give you thanks for all that she has done in obedience to you and we offer these things in the name of Jesus and all of God's people said, would you thank Rosemary for her service? The other day I invited a friend to breakfast. He had done something generous for us and we actually had saved a lot of money in the process and so I just wanted to thank him in a, in a more tangible way. And, uh, and so we showed up the, at the appointed hour at my favorite pancake place and we ordered a hearty meal and we began to tuck in. And as we were eating, I got a call from my wife who said, um, you left your wallet at home. <laughs> so guess who paid for the thank you breakfast? <laughs> I'm so grateful for all you've done for us. How about throwing in 35 bucks more just for good, good measure? Needless to say, it wasn't the meal that I had planned on. This morning, Jesus has a meal that he hadn't planned on either. Or maybe he didn't have a meal because I have a hunch that by the time this conversation was over, nobody had an appetite at all. Here's how it gets started. Luke chapter 11, we're continuing in our journey through the gospel of Luke. Luke 11, verse 37, one verse just to kind of kick it off. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. And so we, he went in and reclined at table. And the Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. This isn't the first time or the last time that a Pharisee invites Jesus to a meal in the Gospel of Luke. Actually, Jesus has a lot of meals with a lot of different sorts of folks. But I guarantee you this was the spiciest meal that Jesus had. And I'm not talking salsa here. Things were about to get hot because from the start it is clear that this Pharisee is trying to pick a fight. And Jesus decides to oblige him. 
If your image of Jesus is gentle Jesus, meek and mild, this is going to rattle your cage because Jesus is about to take off the gloves. The, the meal, even the invitation, starts disrespectfully. We just read about it. While Jesus was teaching, in other words, the Pharisee interrupted Jesus in the middle of his teaching. That you never interrupted a rabbi. It was a great insult. It was very rude. But Jesus seems graciously to ignore the insult and he accepts the invitation. But when he does and he reclines at table, the Pharisee gets mad at him because he didn't wash properly. When I was a kid, mom will remember, a meal never started without dad saying, did you wash your hands? Did you wash your hands? And actually there was good reason for this. We lived on a farm. We, we had road apple wars. How many know what road apple wars are? How many know what road apples are? Road apples are the dried horse turds. And so we would throw those. I mean, that's how we played. We would have fights with those. So it was a good question. We played outside. Kids, you might want to look that up on your devices. Play outside. It was astonishingly fun, actually. So my hands were always filthy, and it was a good question for my dad to ask. And the answer almost always was no. And then he said, well, go wash your hands before you eat. The Pharisees were not concerned, however, with hygiene. They were concerned about rituals, about ritualistic rules that weren't even found in the Old Testament, but that had been added on down through the centuries. And the Pharisees loved their rules. We hear so much about the Pharisees. If you've gone to Sunday school, if you heard any sermon, we always hear about the Pharisees and the, the battles that they were having with Jesus. But do you even know who the Pharisees were, besides being one of the, the religious groups? Maybe it would be worth time just to, just to pause for a moment, have to do a little history lesson so you can understand who this group of religious leaders were, the Pharisees. So here we go. History time. 300 years before the Romans invaded Palestine, they were invaded by another country, another kingdom. Do you know who that was? The Greeks. 300 years earlier, they were invaded by the Greeks, led by a guy I bet you've heard of before, Alexander the Great. And so they led, they took over this part of the world, and in the ensuing decades, the Greeks did everything they could to pressure the Jews to not be Jews to be less Jewish. They tried to force on them their language and their customs and their religion. I mean, this explains why all of our New Testament documents are in Greek, because of the influence of the Greek people. And some of the Jews caved to that pressure. They just collaborated with the Greeks. They were, as a result, rewarded with power and wealth and influence. And one of the groups that were the collaborators were the Sadducees. Say Sadducees. Sadducees. You've heard of them, right? But did you know who they were? They were collaborators. They were considered by many in their own nation to be traitors. Theologically, they were really liberal. They're kind of like our old PCUSA denomination. They didn't really believe much about anything about their faith, but because they were willing to to go uh, along with their Greek overlords, then they were given great control over the Jewish priesthood, over the temple, all of the temple concessions. And so these kind of unbelievers actually had control over all of the Jewish faith. It was weird. It was awful. And there was a group that arose in protest about this. 
This group wanted to preserve the true Jewish faith. They wanted to be faithful to God's word. And they refused to compromise with the Greeks or the Sadducees and, and chose instead to separate themselves from the Greeks. In fact, they took on a name that means literally the separated ones. You know who that was? The Pharisees. The Pharisees. Understand this. The Pharisees started out with noble purpose, noble intentions. They wanted to preserve the faith. They wanted to obey God's word. They, they believed that only those who observed God's laws were going to go to heaven, and they were going to meticulously obey those laws so that they could do so. Then rises the question, though, which laws do you have to obey? And how do you define those laws? Because if, for instance, you can't work on the Sabbath, as, as, the, as one of the Ten Commandments says, well, then what does work mean? How far can you walk on a, on a Sabbath day without getting in trouble? Um, can, you, can you cook something on the Sabbath? Can you carry a child? Can you care for a sick person? So they needed rules. If the Pharisees were going to obey all of God's rules, they needed someone to define exactly what those rules were. Now comes that third Jewish group that you've also heard about in Sunday school. It's the group called the scribes, or the, the, the lawyers, as we will see it in our text. Scribes were a combo of seminary professor and calligraphers. They were responsible for reproducing all of the Old Testament texts, and they were the authorities on all of the words that were found in those texts. And over the centuries, they became the, the commentators. And volumes of commentary was added uh, in order to define what Jewish life was supposed to look like. What are the rules that we have to follow? They added hundreds of laws that were not found in the Bible, like laws about ritual hand-washing before dinner. The that's why Jesus ignored them, because they weren't biblical. So simply put, scribes made these rules, and the Pharisees tried to keep them all. That was kind of how it sorted out. The, the scribes were the heads, they were the, the thinkers of the law. The Pharisees, they were the hands, they were kind of the doers of the law. Now that's kind of simplistic, they overlap sometimes, but maybe it'll give you a bit of an idea. And Jesus was always at odds with these guys because he would not follow their man-made laws. In some cases, he ignored them entirely, like rituals about how you're supposed to wash before you eat. In some cases, he, he interpreted them even more rigorously. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus said, you've heard it said you shouldn't kill anyone. I'll tell you this, if you hate someone, you've killed them. You've, you've heard it said you're not supposed to commit adultery. I'll tell you this, if you lust after a woman, you've already committed adultery in your heart. The point is that Jesus would not replay by their rules, the scribes and the Pharisees, and they hated him for it. So when he reclines at this Pharisee's table, then they start buzzing about him not washing his hands. For some reason, Jesus has had enough. Off come the gloves of his improperly clean hands, and he lowers the boom. He's about to stomp him into a mud puddle. Are you ready for a little stomping? Here, listen to this. Here we go. The Lord said to him, that is his host, You Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools. 
Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These ought, you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things you insult us also. And Jesus said, Woe to you lawyers also! For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you! For you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed, and their murders will be charged against this generation. Verse 52, woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter heaven yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. Pastor Ellis tells me that when he was in Catholic kindergarten, he had a teacher named Mrs. Gribbons. That's ribbons with a G, he said. And she always said to her kindergarten students, Woe betide you if... And then she'd fill in the blank. Woe betide you if you don't clean up your mess. Woe betide you if you don't finish your work. Pastor Ellis says, I didn't even know what woe meant. I'm still not sure I know what betide means, but we knew we were in trouble when Mrs. Gribben said, Woe betide you. Well, the Pharisees knew they were in trouble. Jesus said, woe betide you, three times. The word woe means calamity or catastrophe. It it is a word of sorrow or remorse. But when it was a word spoken against a person, it was actually a word of judgment. Jesus is pronouncing judgment against these Pharisees. It is a scathing spiritual attack on men who prided themselves on how religious they were. And, and then as the, as the Pharisees are withering under his attack, the stupidest man in the Gospels opens his mouth. Did you see that? One of the scribes says, Teacher, in saying these things to the Pharisees, you insult us also. How stupid could you be? If he had just kept his mouth shut, just kept his head down, they might have avoided all of that. But no, teacher, those mean things that you are saying insult us. And suddenly we see the spotlight swivel from the Pharisees, whop, over to the lawyers. Jesus said, you want some of this? Here you go. And Jesus then lays three more woes on the scribes, while all the Pharisees over here are quivering in relief. You're never going to hear harsher words from the Jesus' mouth. These are pronouncements of divine judgment. And they are spoken on those who were supposed to be the shepherds of their flocks. Instead, they were setting horrible examples and they were neglecting, if not outright, abusing their people. A member of my life group calls these the anti-beatitudes. You know, Beatitudes were blessing, blessing, blessing. These are the cursings of Jesus upon the spiritual leaders. And as a, as a pastor, I need to tell you, it is painful to read this. 
Because it is written, first of all, to us, to the spiritual leaders of the church, the pastors, the elders, the deacons, the seminary professors. And I think we could sum up these six woes in maybe three woeful offenses. Here they are. We're going to look at them. Hypocrisy and pride and malpractice. Hypocrisy, pride, and malpractice. So let's take a look at the first one. Hypocrisy. Jesus doesn't exactly use that word in this phrase, but the very next verse, 12.1, he uses this word hypocrisy. And we understand that word today. We understand it to mean a person who says one thing, but does another, right? That's what we understand to be a, a hypocrite. Did you know that until Jesus' time, that definition didn't exist? It was Jesus who was the first teacher who ever used the word in the way we understand it. At that time, hypocrites was an actor. And the actors of ancient theater wore various masks on their faces depending upon which roles they were playing. That's what a hypocrite was, a mask wearer. But Jesus redefines the word. He calls out those who wear spiritual masks outwardly, who play spiritual roles on the outside to be noticed and to be admired. But he said, on the inside, you are dirty. You are filthy. Everything he did, Jesus said, everything was about play acting. And he gives an example, tithing. Probably every observant Jew would have tithed. It was one of the instructions from the Old Testament. You gave the first tenth of everything you made back to the Lord in gratitude to him. And by the way, for those of you who say that tithing is an Old Testament principle, Jesus affirms it right here. He said, yeah, you should be doing that. He said you should be tithing. But, but, he's, but these guys were doing it for show, even down to the herbs that they grew in their garden in the backyard. They would count out nine mint leaves for their tea, and that was for themselves. And then they'd set aside one mint leaf for God. And Jesus said, that's all fine, except you are so focused on the minutia that you neglect the thing God really cares about, love and justice. You make these outward grand gestures so that everyone will see how generous you are, and you neglect the inner hidden things that matter the most to God. And then if that's not enough, he, drop, he really drops the hypocrisy hammer. According to Jewish law, if you came into contact with a dead person, you were unclean. Unclean for seven days. You couldn't go to church, couldn't go to synagogue, couldn't go to temple. You couldn't do anything spiritually like that. And so the Jews took all of this very seriously to avoid death, to avoid tombs, graves. In fact, every spring, they would whitewash every single grave so that you could spot the grave from a distance and not inadvertently step on it and be made ritually unclean. But Jesus says, you guys are whitewashed on the outside, but inside you are rotten, dead to the core. The people who respect you, the people whom you shepherd, you are so corrupt that when they are, are near you, it's like them stepping on an unwashed, unwhitewashed grave. You make them worse, not better. You make them more dead, not alive. You corrupt them, you hypocrites. Woe betide you for that. Is there anything more damaging, more destructive, more heartbreaking than a, a hypocrite pastor? How many have, have lost heart and lost faith and even left the church because they found out the truth about pastors' hidden lives? We've had too much of that in recent years. Hypocrisy. 
Then comes pride. This is, you've heard this speech from me a lot, but you're going to hear it some more. Because I think that pride is the mother of all sins. And I think it is particularly the mother of all pastoral sins. We who are called as shepherds to humble ourselves as the Lord humbled himself. Philippians 2 says he emptied himself. He left everything behind in glory to come, humbled himself and took on the form of a servant. We are called to lead in that way. But the spotlight, the power, the intoxicating effect of people sitting row by row and drinking in everything you have to say. It can be corrosive to the soul. Jesus calls that out when he says, you love being big shots. You love getting the best seats in the synagogue. You love being greeted with honor in the marketplace. He said, you are so concerned with your reputation. You are so proud. Woe to you for that. I had another pride battle this weekend. It never goes away, does it? But that's the only way to, to beat it down is to, every time you catch it, is to beat it mercilessly to death. I had another one this week. I was invited to speak at an out-of-state funeral for a friend of mine. And I thought I was being invited to preach the sermon, which is what I would have wanted to do. I discovered I wasn't. I was being asked to just offer a few remarks. And I was offended. You don't want Mark Toon preaching the sermon? Gasp! And it's... It was pure pride. Woe betide you, Mark Toon, for your pride. So hypocrisy and pride. And, and then there's one more that I think sneaks out of here. One more painful accusation. It is malpractice. Spiritual malpractice. We all know what this means. If a doctor mistreats a patient in her care, she's guilty of malpractice. Pastors can be guilty of spiritual malpractice. And Jesus calls it out. He said, you make rules, you lay burdens on people that are too hard to bear. They can't bear them. And then you don't even lift a finger to try to help them with that burden. He said, you've been given the keys to the kingdom of God. And not only do you not choose not to go through the door, you hinder those who were on their way. You redirect them. You don't even let them go to heaven. Woe betide you, he said, for your spiritual malpractice. I'll tell you, as a preacher, this is an ominous word because every Sunday I know that I have hurting and broken people that are gathered before me. And if all I do is pile on more hurt, pile on a bigger burden of guilt and shame and don't raise a finger to help lift that load, that is malpractice. If you ever walk out of me, every Sunday you probably should hear some prophetic word about what's going on in your life. But if you ever walk out of here without having heard a word of hope, a word of gospel, a word of blessing, a word of peace, then I have failed as your preacher. Hypocrisy and pride and malpractice. Woe, 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 Jesus says. Harsh words directed at spiritual leaders. We religious types, we typically reserve our harshest criticism for the irreligious types, the unbelievers, the non-Christians, those that we think are corrupting our culture. But Jesus always reserved his harshest criticism for religious leaders, those 
so concerned about making and enforcing religious rules that they neglected the nurture of their own heart and they neglected the hearts of their flocks. May God save you from pastors who don't lead and preach out of their own deep sense of sin and brokenness. And may this pulpit always be filled by those who approach this task in humility and compassion and mercy and grace. This passage is, first of all, for guys like me and gals like me in this role. But it might have something to say to you as well. Because preachers aren't the only ones who struggle with hypocrisy, am I right? Preachers aren't the only ones who struggle with pride or even spiritual abuse. We may not have any Pharisees anymore. We may not have scribes. But that doesn't mean you're off the hook. Because the Pharisee spirit is alive and well. The scribal spirit is alive and well. There are, for instance, folks in church who love to learn. They love Sunday school and they love conferences and buying the newest books and Bible studies. And they fill their brains with theology and they know all the answers at Alpha. And they pray eloquent prayers. But somehow that Bible knowledge never makes it into action in their lives. They, their neighbors would never know that they love Jesus by the way they treat them. Their co-workers wouldn't have a clue. It doesn't impact their, their living, their giving, their service. Their faith is all here. All here, all in the head. That's the scribal spirit. And the Pharisee spirit is alive and well too because you all are the rule keepers. Rule keepers think that they can earn God's favor by their rule keeping. They think that God is pretty lucky to have them because they're so good. Modern day Pharisees are superior just as they were 2,000 years ago. They are superior. They're sometimes a little snotty. They have no mercy for those who don't know and don't obey all of their rules. They have no mercy for broken people who walk through our doors or who are afraid to walk through our doors. No mercy. That's Pharisee spirit. And I think every believer struggles one side or the other with this. Either the head stuff or the hand stuff. Either scribal spirit, a head full of knowledge that you don't use, or a Pharisee spirit, hands people who are the rule keepers with no grace, head or hands. Could I ask you, what is missing in both of those? Heart! Heart! If they only had a heart, this is the ten man section of the gospel. If they only had a heart, you've got to have heart. We need people who know theology, who teach good theology, who hold up what is true and faithful to God's Word. We need that. And we need Christians who actually try to live according to the gospel, the Word of the gospel. We want Christians who actually try to live like Jesus. But if we don't have a heart, if we don't love God and love our neighbor... If we don't nurture compassion and mercy and grace towards those that we don't think are believing or behaving properly, we miss entirely the gracious call of Christ upon our lives. That's the astounding, unsettling, and even offensive aspect of grace in the gospel. Jesus loved and cared for those who misbehaved all of the time because he wanted them to, better, to do better, to know better, to experience more. And the rule keepers had no, no time for him. All head, all hands, no heart. Woe 
Whoa! Today we received 12 wonderful young people. What a gift it was to me to be able to meet some of them in their membership process. And they professed their faith and they affirmed their baptismal vows that were taken on behalf. They declared that they are ready to assume responsibility as members of this congregation going forward. And thank God for that. A next generation of leadership rising up. So then I'll ask you, what kind of church are they going to join? What kind of church are they going to help to form and to lead? And I pray that we will resist the temptation of so many thousands and thousands of churches down through the centuries. The temptation to make our organization about knowing the right stuff and keeping all the rules. I pray that we also will teach them the grace of Jesus who taught us how to love God when he said we love him first of all with all our heart and then with all our might and with all our mind. All our heart, it comes first. Join me in prayer. God, save us. Save us from the Pharisee spirit. Save us from the scribe spirit, knowing so much and doing nothing with it. The Pharisee spirit, thinking that we can somehow earn your affection, earn your blessing, earn your love by the but keeping of all the rules. Save us from, from the elitism that this can create where we don't have time for those who believe or behave improperly. Give us the heart of Jesus who was gracious and he invited all broken people to come and to discover life in him. And may it start with us, Lord. May we have the heart of Christ who emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. May we have a heart that loves God and loves neighbor first. And we ask this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and close in song. Commit our hearts to what we've just learned.
Thanks for joining us today at Chapel Hill Church. If you'd like to visit us in person, we're located at 7700 Scancy Avenue, Gig Harbor, Washington. Our worship services are Sundays at 9 and 10.30. We hope to see you there. To learn more about our upcoming events, visit us online at chapelhillpc.org. went off the rail. I mean, it started so good, right? We want to be faithful to God. We want to obey God's word. We want to keep his law. We want to honor him in everything we do. That, isn't that good? That's noble. The scribes, we want to preserve God's law faithfully. We want to interpret it so that everyone will understand how to live. How do these guys go off the rails? At some point, it became more about the stuff they knew and the things they did than the God that they loved. And that's the way, that's one of the ways the devil breaks down the, the, the church, turn us into rule keepers and, and, and crush our hearts of grace and love, mercy. We've been talking a lot about renewal and revival these last months. Tonight, we're going to pray. We're going to pray. We're going to ask the Holy Spirit to continue to do a work of renewal and revival in this church. And we need to pray about, about this kind of stuff too, that our hearts are good, that our grace is stronger than our rule keeping. I hope you'll come. I'm going to be there. Last time we had over 300 people. It was, it was one of the biggest prayer events we've ever had. I hope you'll come back tonight. Our young people are going to be here. They're going to help lead us in, in this prayer and worship tonight. And I hope you'll join us tonight at 6.30. May the Lord have mercy on us. May we be good theologians and obedient followers of Christ and as gracious as the Lord Jesus himself was, right? May that be our, the combo of our, of our life together. I want to close with one more thing. I'm going to ask Mike to come forward, please. As you know, you know, every Sunday we have 
uh, a guardian who stands watch over our people and our children, our ministry here. And one of those faithful guardians over the many years has been Mike Allen. Officer Mike has been here serving us in this way. <laughs> they love you. Mike has been serving us now for about 18 years. I remember when you came one time to ask me about a sense of call upon your life about chaplaincy work, and I encouraged you to pursue it, right? Yep. And, and that's exactly what he's going to do. This is his last Sunday with us as an officer of the Gig Harbor Police Department. He's going to be retiring, and he's going to be moving into other areas of ministry going forward. And we just couldn't let the day pass without thanking him and praying for him uh, and, uh, and thanking God for his service, his care, his protection over us. So we love you and we thank you and I know everyone feels the same way about that. <laughs> I know. He said, I will cry. <laughs> That's okay. Would you extend your hand out to Mike and we're going to just pray for him. Father, we thank you for our brother in Christ. We thank you for the care, the protection that he has offered to us over these many, many, many years. We have no idea the ways in which you have used him to preserve and protect us. But we thank you for it and for all of the care he's given to this community. And now as he prepares to to retire and head off into new areas of ministry and opportunity. We pray your Holy Spirit will go before him and be upon him and turn this last third of his life into the most productive part of it ever. We, we, we lose him to us with, with very heavy hearts, but we're so grateful that you loaned him to us for these many years. And we pray your richest kindness to him. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's my favorite part in the moment. I'm going to ask the police officer to put his hands up. So put your hands up. <laughs> the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his perfect peace, both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and all of God's people said, Amen.